on our worship guide here, we have Psalm 98 printed up on page 6. So let's, uh, let's listen, please, as I read Psalm 98. Now remember, this is the word of the Lord. So let's pay attention to what the Lord would teach us through this psalm. The psalm says, well, it's entitled A Psalm. There's a, a, a title to it that's part of Holy Scripture. And then it begins, Oh, sing to Yahweh a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Join me on verse 2, please. Yahweh has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth and a joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to Yahweh with a lyre, with a lyre and the sound of melody. With trumpets, the sound of the horn, make a joyful noise before the King, Yahweh. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh, for He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the people's with equity. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you've given your word for your people in the days of the Old Testament and for today. Lord, we ask you to send your spirit that we might understand this portion of scripture and that you would teach us marvelous things through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Psalm 98 is one of the eight psalms, numbers 93 through 100, that celebrate Yahweh's kingship. And these psalms call for the nations, the peoples of the earth, to join in his worship. It actually has a one-word title that I mentioned is called a psalm. Now, what is a psalm? Well, in the Hebrew Scriptures, it's a poem addressed to God to be accompanied by singing and instrumental worship, instrumental music. So the worship of Almighty God with song and music is not a small matter in the Hebrew Scriptures. A major portion of Scripture is giving, given to this. It is a prescribed way, these psalms, uh, a delineated way that God should be worshipped. Nor is the worship of God revealed in the Psalms to be lost in the New Testament church. For we're told specifically in at least two uh, epistles that we're to worship God by singing Psalms. As many of you know, whenever we see in our English Bible the word Lord in all capitals, it's a translation of that Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the personal name of God, 
that was given through Moses to the people of God. The covenant name of God and his covenant committed relationship to his people. Now, whenever I'm preparing to preach from a text of scripture like this, I search for what I think is the main idea of the passage. The thing that I think the Lord wants his people to understand, the most crucial point. Well, here's the way I would state the main idea in this psalm. Yahweh merits exuberant, exuberant praise for his works of salvation and his coming judgment. Let me say it again. Yahweh merits exuberant praise for his works of salvation and his coming judgment. Now, I want you to notice several things about this main idea statement. First of all, I'm using Yahweh's personal name, Yahweh, and I use the word merit to describe why Yahweh should be praised. He merits praise. He deserves praise. He has earned the right and reason to be praised by His creatures. He's done great things, unimaginable things that no human could do or even imagine doing. And He's to be praised for two principal reasons in this psalm. For His works of salvation and His coming judgment. Notice I say works. He's done more than one work of salvation. He's done many works of salvation and we'll look at a few of those in a few minutes. He saved his people in various ways over the centuries. He's also to be praised for the coming future judgment which he will mete out on those who reject him, on sinners. So we could say there's a positive and a negative reason to praise him. And lastly, in this uh, main idea statement, I state that we should praise God with exuberance. In other words, not half-hearted, not nonchalantly, not lazily, but with exuberance. Well, what does the word exuberance mean? Well, it means uninhibited enthusiasm. Or to praise Him with lavish abundance, to praise Him with abounding vitality, to praise Him in an extremely joyful and vigorous way. So this is what it means to praise God with exuberance. So the main idea again is this, Yahweh merits exuberant praise for His works of salvation and His coming judgment. Well, there are three major sections in this psalm. There's nine verses. It's divided up in sections of three verses each. The first section, Yahweh's works of salvation call for a new song of praise. Verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6, Yahweh's kingship calls for exuberant, uh, exuberant worship. And lastly, Yahweh's coming judgment calls for rejoicing. Well, let's take the first major section. Yahweh's works of salvation call for a new song of praise. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. What are some of the marvelous things God has done? Well, we'll consider those in a moment. 
Uh, I want to point out, though, that there's a very important word here in this verse. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song for. He has done marvelous things. The word for here really means because or for the reason that. We should sing a new song to Yahweh because for the reason that He has done marvelous things. The word things here, you may notice, is in the plural. It's not singular. He's done more than one thing. Marvelously. Can you think of a marvelous thing or two that God has done? Well, let's think for a a few moments together. Think of His works of creation. He spoke the universe into existence by the command of His speech, by His word. To create a universe by His spoken word, when just a moment previously there was no universe, is an awesome act of power. You and I cannot really create anything. All we can do is take the matter that's in creation and form it into other things. If we had the skill, we could take iron ore and form it into tools made out of iron. We can take corn. We can't create corn, but we can take the corn, we can harvest it and make cornbread. Well, what are some other marvelous acts that God has done? The very fact that you and I are breathing right now is a result of how God has constructed our bodies. Our hearts keep beating and our blood keeps flowing through our veins even though we're not trying to do this, even though we're not concentrating on this because God has programmed our bodies to do these things automatically. Other things that God has done, marvelous works. He keeps the sun traveling in its yearly path around the earth. And he keeps the moon traveling in its monthly cycle around the earth. Besides this, he's performing millions, trillions, uncountable numbers of actions and operations, not only among humanity on planet earth, but throughout the universe. He's guiding each of our lives by his sovereign providence. It's no accident that you and I live here in Dallas, Texas, the USA, in the year 2023, and that we know one another, and that we serve and worship together in this local church. God is continually doing marvelous things in us as people and around us all the time. But there's another level on which God is doing marvelous works. Think of what He's done in the salvation of His people throughout biblical history. Verse 1 says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. The old King James James English says, His right hand and holy arm have gotten Him the victory. Same idea. So, this important word salvation is stated here the first time in this psalm. In fact, the word salvation is used in each of the first three verses. So, at the end of verse 1, we see, actually in verse 2, we see that the Lord has made known His salvation. In the last verse of 
the last sentence of verse 3, we also read, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So, His right hand, holy armor of work salvation for Him, the Lord has made known His salvation, and all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So, we can easily see that God is in the salvation business. He's actively saving His people from all kinds of dangers that may come their way. For example, in the book of Genesis, we read how He saved Jacob and his 12 sons from starvation when famine hit the land of Palestine. He sent them to Egypt where there was abundant food, but 400 years later, circumstances had changed in uh, Egypt. They had a new Pharaoh, and he oppressed the people. This was something that Pharaoh had not done before. But God led his people to escape Pharaoh's army when they left the land by opening up the Red Sea so they could walk through the seabed on dry ground. This was a mighty act of salvation. God is in the business of saving his people. He had never done such a thing before. The Hebrew people had never been chased by Pharaoh and his army. They'd never been saved from destruction in the Red Sea because it opened up and allowed them to pass through. So when they got to the opposite shore, they had to sing a new song. The songs they had just didn't quite fit. Something God had done great and marvelous. He delivered them from oppression in Egypt, brought them safely through the Red Sea. And so we read in Exodus 15:1, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord to Yahweh, saying, I will sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and rider he's thrown into the sea. Yahweh is my strength and my song, and he's become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Yahweh is a man of war. Yahweh is his name. Yahweh went to war against Pharaoh and Pharaoh's armies, and completely defeated him. So this was cause for a new song. And they began to praise God and worship because of his great act of salvation and bringing them out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. <clears throat> when God does something new and great for his people, they compose new songs of worship, as we see here in Exodus 15. But I want you to notice what the second sentence of verse 1 says. It says, His right hand and His holy arm have worked salvation for Him. Now the right hand of God, of Yahweh, is an expression used to reveal His power in behalf of His people. For example, in Isaiah 41.10, the Scripture says, Fear not, Yahweh speaking here, Fear not, for I am with you, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And the phrase, his holy arm, is used in a similar way. The text says here, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. 
I forgot to write down where that comes from, but that's in the Bible. Okay. <laughs> the Lord has bared His holy arm. So we see that God intervenes in the affairs of His people with His right hand and with His holy arm. And it shows us that God does not stand off. He does not stand aloof from His people from their distresses, but He comes down personally and intervenes in their affairs. Take, for example, a man who has an infant child and his wife dies. So the father does not just hire a nursemaid to come in and take care of the child, but he takes care of the baby himself, changing his diapers, feeding the child, looking after him. He intervenes personally, continually in the life of that little baby. So Yahweh does for his people. Well, the greatest example we have in the Bible of what God did in entering our human situation was the sending of His Son mm -hmm. to take upon Himself our complete human nature without sin. And He lived among us as a fellow human being. So no one could accuse God of being aloof and unfamiliar with the difficulties and the temptations of a human a sinful a living, a human living among other sinful humans. Well, of course, Christ was not sinful, but he lived among sinful people. So what happened here? Jesus was born of Mary. He grew up in Nazareth. When he got to be of age, probably as a young teenager, he began to follow his father's occupation as a carpenter. So he rolled up his sleeves on his robe, and he did the work of a carpenter. He cut down trees, probably sawed the wood, fashioning the wood to make lumber for houses and furnitures, sweating in the summer, and having numb hands in the winter. Jesus became fully human. God, in Christ, entered our human situation. It was something that had never happened before. In fact, Paul tells us in Colossians 1.26, the mystery, that is the incarnation of God the Son, was hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to His saints in the gospel. When Jesus took on our flesh, Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, realized that something marvelous was happening to her. The angel came and spoke to her and told her she was going to become pregnant by the Holy Spirit. So she begins to praise God and says, My soul magnifies the Lord. This is the Magnificat, as we call it. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He's looked on the humble estate of His servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things, marvelous things for me, and holy is His name. For His mercy is for those who fear Him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. So Mary had a song, a poem that came to her. When she realized what was happening, the Son of God was sent from heaven to rescue his people from sin, from death, from ignorance. And so new songs <coughs> have been breaking out ever since. 
in the early church. In fact, there's a couple of hymns in the New Testament that we think Paul probably adopted or adapted from those that were being sung in the church. One of those is in Philippians 2, 6-11. Scholars believe it's most likely a hymn that was being sung at that time, which says, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The early church was singing this. Therefore God has highly exalted him. The people of God begin to worship. God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's why they wouldn't bow to Caesar. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The church was singing these kinds of songs because God had done such a marvelous thing in coming into human life and living among us. Amen. Well, <clears throat> the text goes on here. And it says, <clears throat> The Lord has made, his, made known His salvation in verse 2. He has revealed His righteousness in the sight of the nations. <clears throat> When I was thinking about this text, I was wondering, how could God reveal His righteousness in the sight of the nations hundreds of years before Christ was ever born? So, Brother Wayne talked to me about this, and I read this in two or three commentaries, that the way we can understand this is that when God's people were delivered from Egypt, as I've been talking about, News of this deliverance spread around that part of the world among the pagan peoples. When Yahweh delivered his people from Egypt, there was actually a spiritual battle going on between the gods of Egypt and the true God of heaven and earth. And the true God won the battle decisively. Well, <clears throat> when other nations around there heard of this, their knees began to tremble. Who is this mighty God, Yahweh, that delivered his people from the mighty Pharaoh and his army? <clears throat> well, I'm going to give you an example of the effect it had on the peoples around there. Remember when the spies were sent <clears throat> into the land in Joshua chapter 2 by uh, Joshua, and they came to Jericho, and they went up and they knocked on the door of a prostitute named Rahab, or Rahab, and it says in Joshua 2.8, Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. And said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sahan and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. As soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, 
And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. So, God's salvation, His righteousness was revealed in the sight of the nations. <clears throat> now, at that time, they may not have known about China, the existence of China and, and Japan and, and the American continents, but the ones they knew about, the eastern part of the Mediterranean Sea, those nations around there, they consider that the world in their own thinking because of their limited knowledge of geography. And so they said that he's revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. Well, <clears throat> let's look at verse 3. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. What are the two things he has remembered? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, those are precious words. Amen. It means God is steadfast. He's going to stand with His people. He's going to love them. He's going to be faithful. He's going to keep every promise He ever made. He's a faithful God. This is covenant language being used here. Some of key, God's key attributes and how He relates to His people is with steadfast love and faithfulness. For example, in Psalm 40, verse 11, we read, As for you, O Yahweh, you will not restrain your mercy from me, your steadfast love and your faithfulness will ever preserve me. Hallelujah. What a great comfort to be able to know that, to say that, to rest in that. Here is perhaps Yahweh's greatest act to marvel at is his own actions toward his people over the centuries which flowed from his steadfast love and faithfulness to the Hebrew nation. Even when they rebelled and sinned against him, he remained faithful to his own nature and he had to bring punishment and judgment on them for their sins to maintain his righteousness. Well, the second part of verse 3 says, All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. We've already talked about that. It's because the nations in that part of the world had seen Yahweh's act of deliverance of His people through the Red Sea. So this great act of deliverance and salvation was forever etched in the conscience of the Hebrew people. They were reminded year after year at the Passover what God had done for them and delivering them from Egypt. However, unfortunately, there came a time when they began to forget. They began to neglect God's Word. In fact, I believe it was about 400 years went by when they did not celebrate the Passover until Josiah, King Josiah, brought, brought revival to the nation. Well, all the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God, it says, in verse 3. I think we can think of this verse similar to what Habakkuk 2.14 says, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of Yahweh as the waters cover the sea. It's true that God's glory can be seen everywhere around the earth. But there's coming a day when the supreme glory of God, that which is seen in His Son, will appear in the sky and His redemptive work will be known 
throughout the earth. A day is coming. A day is coming when all the promises and prophecies in the Old Testament regarding the coming judgment on sin and evil and the coming day of salvation and restoration of His people will happen. It is a day, a capital D, a day when the gospel will be preached to all the nations, all the people groups, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will hear of the Lord Jesus Christ and come to Him in repentance and faith. Jesus said, when the gospel is preached in all the world, then the end will come. Amen. When that happens, Jesus will return to bring in His everlasting kingdom and gather to Himself His people from east and west, from north and south. So, what do we see in these first three verses? That Yahweh's works of salvation call for new songs of praise. Now, in the second section, verses 4 through 6, we see that Yahweh's kingship calls for exuberant worship. Verse 4 says, Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. <clears throat> so, in celebration of Yahweh's acts of salvation, the Hebrew people were to lift up their praises to Him in exuberant worship. They were to make joyful noises of worship. They were to shout and praise Him. They were to break forth into joyous songs. What does break forth mean? Well, let me give you a picture. You know the Hoover Dam across the Colorado River uh, between Arizona and Nevada? Suppose that dam were to burst all of a sudden one day. And that water would break forth out of that lake and flood everything below the dam. The water would break forth if the concrete dam suddenly collapsed. Well, the praises of God need to break forth. Break forth into joyous songs and sing praises. Verse 4 says, Our praises need to break forth as water coming over a collapsed dam. Amen. So in our worship, all the restraint and inhibitions and timidity in our minds should be cast aside. We should pour forth the praises of God. Amen. Let them loose. Amen. Be not ashamed to praise God, for He's worthy. Amen. King David was unashamed to praise God. When the ark was being brought into Jerusalem, he danced around and his wife made fun of him. But he was unashamed to worship God. He was an exuberant worshiper of God. And he made for exuberant worship in the temple. He appointed singers and musicians. He invested much time and planning and money and training so that Yahweh could be worshipped properly within the temple. He spared no expense or effort in the hearty, rigorous, yet skillful worship of God. The greatness of God calls for the greatest worship we can give Him. Amen. Verses 5 and 6 state this, Sing praises to Yahweh with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, <laughs> Yahweh. So the writer of the psalm here is exhorting the people to praise Yahweh as the King of His people, not only with their human voices, 
but to enhance their worship, to fortify their worship with musical instruments, with harps, lyres, trumpets, and horns. Think how much our own singing here is enhanced by Larry playing the piano for us. A few weeks ago, we didn't have him. He was sick. It was a kind of rough going. <laughs> well, all this worship is directed toward Yahweh as king. And what a great king he is. Amen. He's almighty to create and sustain the universe moment by moment, as well as our individual lives. He's perfect in all of his attributes of steadfast love, faithfulness, and righteousness. What a great privilege it is to serve such a king. I wouldn't trade him for anything, would you? No, we wouldn't trade him. There's no other king, no other God that can measure up to the perfection of his being, of his person, his attributes. The greatness of Yahweh calls for the greatest worship we can give him. Amen. Well, so what have we seen so far? We've seen that Yahweh's work works of salvation call for new songs of praise. And we've seen that Yahweh's kingship calls for exuberant worship. Amen. And now, in the last section, verses 6 through 9, or 7 through 9, we see that Yahweh's coming judgment calls for, not weeping, but rejoicing. The text says, verse 7, Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before Yahweh. For He comes. He comes for what reason? To judge. To judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness. And the peoples with equity. This is a cause for great rejoicing. Not just people, but even creation itself is exhorted to, to praise God. He's so great that even the created order, both animate people and inanimate objects, are to express exuberant praise to Him. This is the language of the Hebrew poet. But Paul says in Romans 8, 21, the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption because of man's sin, and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. But one day, the groaning of creation will cease. The Son of God returns and restores the creation to the way it was before the fall of man. As I was studying this text, I was asking myself this question. This exuberant praise in verses 4 through 6 is to be poured out to Yahweh for His acts of salvation in verses 1 through 3. When are we supposed to do this? Are we supposed, or how, when do we do this for His acts of salvation or for His coming judgment? Well, the answer, I think, is both. <laughs> we praise Him with exuberant worship both for His acts of salvation and for his coming judgment. Both of these realities deserve our exuberant worship. Now this coming judgment will be manifested 
finally, completely, and culminating when Jesus, our Lord, returns to the earth. Mm -hmm. Jesus himself spoke about this in Matthew 25, verse 31. He says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. And he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then he will say to those on his left, those who have lived selfishly with no regard for others, less privileged, he will say to those, Depart from me, you cursed, cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. So Christ himself... He's going to be the great judge of all the peoples who have ever lived. Paul acknowledged this fact when he was preaching in Athens to the Greeks there. He says in his sermon in Acts 17.30, The times of ignorance God overlooked. But now He commands. He doesn't suggest this. He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because, for this reason, because He is... Fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So, Christ was raised from the dead for the salvation and justification of his people and also raised from the dead in order to be the judge, the coming judge. One commentator said this about to judge. What does it mean that Christ is going to be the judge? It means he's going to take up active executive control to right all wrongs, redress all imbalances, and to show himself publicly to be the sovereign king, which has been his incognito status all the while. So Christ's resurrection established him not only as the savior of his people, but is the judge of all humans. Christ's judgment will not be prejudiced like human judges. He cannot be bribed like human judges. His knowledge is not defective of good and evil as are human judges. But he will judge in perfect righteousness that flows out of his own perfect righteousness. He will judge all humanity, the text says, in equity. He will judge in righteousness and in equity. In other words, fairly and in truth. Revelation 19 reveals the coming judge, our Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, 11, Then I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. In righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. 
and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. And so the perfect judge will come. Those names are not written in the Lamb's book of life. will be cast into the eternal lake of fire with the devil and his angels. But those whom God has loved and brought to faith in the Savior will be given a rich welcome into Christ's everlasting kingdom on the new earth in which only righteousness will dwell as God's people will be in the very presence of our resurrected Savior. Well, this is a great text today. It teaches us to worship Yahweh with exuberance for His acts of salvation and His coming judgment. You see, Yahweh is not a deistic God. That is the God that some of the uh, early colonists believed in, a God who wound up the universe, put it to work and went away and did His own thing while the universe was running over here. No, God is a hands-on God. Amen. He's rolled down His sleeves. He's bared His right arm and His holy hand to intervene in His creation to save His people. He's a salvation God. He saved His people many times, the Hebrews. And He saved His people through the death and resurrection of His Son. Well, let me ask you this question. Is Yahweh, is He your own righteous King whom you serve and worship in the name of Jesus Christ? I trust that you are that kind of person. But if you're not, bow before His Lordship. Take Him as your King. Serve Him now and forever. It will be the best thing that ever happened to you. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, worship Him as He deserves to be worshipped. Worship Him with exuberant worship. Stir up the internal, internal volcano in your heart and mind and let it erupt in volcanic praise. This is the kind of praise that God desires of His people. Not to praise Him is sin. To praise Him is to give Him glory, which is our highest calling on earth, to be an instrument for the glory of God. Rejoice in King Yahweh. He's a righteous King. And He's revealed Himself supremely in the incarnation of His Son. So in spite of the troubles that sometimes come our way in our lives, Exuberant worship is always proper. It's always available. It's always needful. It's what we always need to do when we gather together and even in our homes. We're never without abundant cause for lifting up to Yahweh, God, our praises with exuberance, with rigor, and with effort. The gift of the exuberant worship of Yahweh 
is the best gift that God could give us mortals as we travel the road of life that's set before us. So to God be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Holy Father, you called sinful mortals like us to enter into the high praises of God, to exuberant worship, to rejoice before you with loud praises, with noise songs of praise, with, with singing, with dancing, with shouting, Lord, with lifting up our voices in song and hymn and spiritual song with psalms of praise, Lord. For you have done great things, and you continue to do great things. And so we thank you for calling us to yourself that we might be wholehearted worshipers, exuberant worshipers of God. Lord, enable us to enter more and more into, the, into your exuberant worship, for you are worthy for your acts of salvation and for your coming judgment. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.